The book of Hebrews, chapter 12. It's going to be uh, in the, the New Testament towards the, the end of the Bible. And uh, as, you're, as you're turning there, uh, on, on January 24th, 1995, opening statements were made in one of the most highly publicized court cases in American history. O.J. Simpson uh, was standing trial, charged with murdering his wife, Nicole, and her friend, Ron Goldman. Uh, the trial lasted nearly nine months and was the focus of constant media attention. Part of that was because of uh, Simpson's initial arrest came after a low-speed pursuit by the police as Simpson and a former teammate refused to, to pull over as they drove through the streets of Los Angeles in a, a white Ford Bronco. But the court case was also sensationalized because there were so many smaller plots woven through in. It was, it was the, the most high-profile case that was ever televised. Add that to the celebrity status of O.J. as one of the, the greatest running backs of all time. Uh, add to it the, the leather gloves that were submitted for evidence and tried on by uh, O.J. during the trial. Uh, you also add the use of DNA evidence, which at that point in time was one of the, the first times that had uh, been used in a court case. Uh, and most influentially, the, you add in the, the alleged systemic racism that uh, Johnny Cochran and his legal team uh, alluded to in their defense of O.J., and Johnny Cochran famously said in the closing argument, if, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. And on October 3rd, 1995, again, the trial started in January. October 3rd, the day of judgment had finally arrived in this case. Uh, and OJ was going to, to stand in this courtroom in Los Angeles and hear the verdict of his trial. Uh, and the judge was going to, to announce what the, the jury had determined. And ultimately, the jury found Mr. Simpson not guilty on both of those counts. And the announcement was watched by millions across the country. And I remember that day. I was in fifth grade. Uh, and uh, my my teacher was going to watch the the verdict during the lunchtime. Uh, and, and he allowed any of the students uh, to come and watch... Uh, the verdict with him. I didn't know what was going on, so I didn't, I didn't go and do that. But I remember what a big deal it was. Uh, and the whole country was buzzing about the verdict that was going to be announced. And the Bible also speaks of a, of a judgment day that many people will have an interest in. But nobody's going to look forward to it with excitement. Uh, there's going to be a buzz, but not one of uh, anxious and anticipation and that judgment is when, when all of humanity will come and stand before Christ uh, at the great white throne. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 speak of this. And, and at that judgment, it won't be a, a jury of our peers who will uh, bring a, a verdict upon us. It will be Christ the Lord himself. Uh, and all those who have placed their faith in Christ will receive a not guilty verdict. And that verdict will come not because we are, uh, you know, really righteous in and of ourselves, not because our, our good deeds have outweighed our sin, which is impossible, by the way. Uh, and it's not because we have a high-priced legal defense team, but it will be because we have a single divine advocate, Jesus Christ, on our behalf, 
Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin. He died uh, and was resurrected from the grave on the third day, conquering sin and demonstrating what he offers to everybody who places his, their, our faith in him. If we believe in Jesus, we are forgiven and raised to newness of life just as he was. And we no longer stand before God as our judge if we have believed in Jesus because we have been completely forgiven. But, but here we have to think about something for a second. So if, if believers never stand before God as our judge, and we, we know for a fact that uh, we will be declared not guilty at that judgment, what happens when we sin in this life? Because believers still sin, and if you're not convinced of that, just ask your spouse or your, your children uh, or your, your parents. We, we all still sin, so what happens when we sin? If we have been declared not guilty because of what Christ has done, how does sin in our life now impact our relationship with God? Well, as Christians, we no longer stand before God as judge, but our relationship with him has changed we still stand before him now as our father. As a child before his father, that is now how we stand before God. Not as a, a cold judge who will punish us, but as a, a heavenly father who lovingly disciplines his children, who admonishes us and points us in the right direction. Uh, and if, if you're with me there in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 speaks of uh, this chastening, this discipline that God brings into our life. So he doesn't punish us, but now he disciplines us as a father disciplines his children. Look with me, beginning in verse 3 of Hebrews 12. The author writes, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, when we are children of God, God lovingly disciplines us in the same way that an earthly father disciplines his children trying to, to shape and mold their character so they don't wander into to danger and activities that will bring judgment upon them. But what does this look like? What does discipline from our Heavenly Father look like in our lives spiritually? Well, you could say first, it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon our conscience. John 16 says, 
And when he, speaking of the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And that's speaking of the, the ministry of the Spirit. So when we sin, what is the Spirit there to do? Shouldn't be doing this. Shouldn't have done that. Uh, that's our, our conscience, and that's a gift of God. That's our uh, the indicator light, the, the warning light on our systems to say, hey, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. That, that's a wrong path, a wrong avenue. And if you continue down this path, worse things are going to happen. That's the conviction of the Spirit upon our conscience. That's the first way that the Lord disciplines us. And if we ignore that, then the weight of conviction that the Spirit brings is felt upon our bodies and upon our souls. Listen to what what David says in Psalm 32. Speaking of unconfessed sin, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the summer heat. Selah. See, David was depressed because of he had unconfessed sin. He had he had sinned and uh, committed adultery and then committed murder and then he hadn't confessed. In his relationship with the Lord, he was pretending like nothing was wrong. And as he did that for a period of time close to a year, he felt this deep darkness, this depression that weighed upon him. He says like the Lord's hand was just pressing down on him. Like his body was wasting away. This weight of conviction is felt upon both our body and our soul when we are not in step with God. So we have the conviction of the Spirit, the weight of that conviction, physically and spiritually. And then third, you could say the results from our separation are felt. The sin always separates. And it separates us from our Heavenly Father. And we see this uh, when we have sin in an earthly relationship. It just naturally separates us. It drives us apart from the one that we have sinned against or who one who sinned against us. And that is what happens in our heaven, relationship with our Heavenly Father. It doesn't change our status as sons and children, but it does change the closeness of our relationship. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So again, we're, we're children, but it seems like we don't. Ha- when we have unconfessed sin, we don't have the Father's ear. He says, hey, we, you need to, to deal with this, to, to make things right. Elsewhere in the Psalms, it talks about if, if we cherish iniquity in our hearts, it hinders our prayers with God. So, so if that's what the discipline of the Lord feels like, when we have unconfessed sin in our life, again, we don't stand before God as judge, but we stand before a father who loves us. So then what should we do when the discipline of the Lord has come upon us? What should we do? Loving discipline comes upon us, and what? how should we respond? And that's what we're going to see in Psalm 6 today. If you turn with me back over to, to the Psalms, we've been working through uh, the Psalms this summer. And, and it's amazing how the Psalms touch on all of the, the emotions and all of the struggles in the Christian life. And that's really what the Psalms are about. How do, how do the righteous, how do the godly now live this life that's not easy? There's affliction. There, there's people who, who will attack us and slander us. Uh, we have to struggle with our own sin. 
We have to struggle with God's, God's holiness and our relationship with him. But as we come to Psalm 6 this morning, we're going to see the first of seven uh, psalms of repentance or, or penitential psalms in the, the 150 uh, psalm book. Uh, and in these psalms, whether it's David or another author, the, the, the psalmist is going to come to God and confess sin and plead for mercy and forgiveness. Uh, and, and they come to God usually because they have felt the natural consequences of sin, Sometimes we, we sin and there's natural results of that. And then other times we feel the discipline of the Lord, where it's not just a natural consequence, but it's the, the Lord saying, okay, now my child, I want you to learn not to do this, and I'm going to have my hand upon you. Now, and as we, we look at this psalm, we're going to see that it's, it's David offering a, a tearful rep- repentance, coming to God full of emotion, just absolutely distraught. And we're not sure exactly of the setting. We're not sure what the sin was that he's coming to confess. We're not sure uh, of the circumstances, but we know that he is coming to confess the sin that was weighing heavily upon him. And, it, and if you look at the title of this psalm, it says, To the choir master, with stringed instruments, uh, according to the Sheminith, uh, a psalm of David. And so what we what we see is, again, this psalm of repentance was intended to be closed up in a book and never looked at again. No, it was intended to be sung. So why would you, why would you put a psalm of repentance to music? Well, it's because music teaches. Well, we saw that in Colossians, right? Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What's one of the ways that we teach and admonish one another? By singing. And that's what our songs should do, and that is what this song does. It teaches us theology. It teaches us how to approach God. And it's amazing the power of song, right? You get that song stuck in your head, even if you want to get it out. You can't. And that's the power of music. And that's that's the goal here with this song, for God's people to hide it in their hearts and in their minds, to bring it up when it is needed. And in this psalm, the truths that are going to be proclaimed, the truths that we are called to remember, is how we can pray in response to the Lord's discipline in our life. And as we we come to this, as in all of the psalms, the most important thing is the movement. Look and see where David begins and where he ends. He doesn't end where he begins. He begins full of emotion, crying out to the Lord. And he ends usually with a confident trust, saying, God, I'm going to trust you. I know you're going to allow me to be victorious in this. Not in a name it and claim it theology, but in a theology rooted in God's character and in his steadfast loving kindness. And as we look at this psalm, we can divide it into three parts. The first two parts consist of prayers that David lifts up to God. And the last part is a proclamation of triumph. David saying, God, I believe these things to be true, and these are going to be the results. And, and as we look at these three parts, we're going to see prayers that we ourselves can echo. Now, as we pray to the Lord, when we are under his discipline, that we can, we can bring before God. This is David teaching us how we ought to pray when we have unconfessed sin in our life. So look with me uh, at this, this first portion of the psalm. We see a prayer for grace in the middle of discipline. Read with me verses 1 through 3. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. 
nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? And as we, as we hear David's prayer, it's going to have some, some different nuances to it. He begins first with an acknowledgement of his own guilt. See, in verse 1, David is acknowledging his guilt before the Lord. He said, well, how is he doing that? Well, the emphasis there, Hebrew has a particular word order to it. They, they say things a certain way, and things are out of order there. Uh, and so the emphasis is upon, first and foremost, the Lord. He's crying out to the Lord, and then there's an emphasis upon the anger and wrath of God in those two statements. So David is not saying, don't rebuke me. He's not saying, don't discipline me. What he's saying is, don't don't rebuke me or discipline me in anger. He says, God, I know I, I need rebuking right now. I know I need a little bit of discipline. But don't do that in anger. Don't do it in wrath. Now, the, the literal Hebrew is, is Yahweh, not in your anger, rebuke me. And not in your wrath, discipline me. And the rebuke comes through God's word, and the discipline always comes through God's rod. But the rebuke through God's word always precedes the rod. God doesn't begin to, to put his hand upon us in discipline until we he brings truth into our our lives as well, according to his word. And David is asking for discipline and for training to be rebuked, but Lord, don't do it in your anger. And then after acknowledging his guilt, he begins to plead for grace. In verse 2, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. The idea of just being frail. Be gracious to me, Lord. He says, Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. And this plead for grace, David, David doesn't say or begin to pray against anybody else. He just simply comes to the Lord and says, Lord, I need your grace. He understands his guilt. We saw that in verse 1. And so he says, God, I just need your grace. Please be gracious to me. Don't deal with me as I deserve to be dealt with. But give what I don't deserve. That's the idea of grace. God God giving something that we do not deserve. Mercy is him withholding what we do deserve. And grace is giving what we don't deserve. And that is what David is appealing for. Lord, be gracious to me. And then at the... Second part of verse 2 and, and all of verse 3, David describes this frailty. He says, I'm languishing, I'm becoming frail. And look, at, listen to his description. He says, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. And the idea of, hey, that, that word troubled is repeated twice, or repeated once. Uh, but, but the idea there, it, troubled is kind of a, in, in the English language, it doesn't sound too bad. But, but in the Hebrew, it's much more emphatic. It's the idea of being horrified. It's the idea of being out of your senses. And, and that is what David is feeling both in body and in soul. And, and this teaches us something really important, that there is a connection between the physical and the spiritual in our lives. 
that there's a connection between the material part of our being, our physical body, and the immaterial part of our being, what the Bible would say is our soul or our spirit. And you see David David saying, hey, I have sin and I need to be rebuked for it, but how is it impacting him, both spiritually and physically? That is what he is saying. And that was the same thing that we saw earlier in Psalm 32. Say that, that, that my spiritual attitude and actions have an impact upon me physically. And in Scripture we see that oftentimes the discipline of the Lord can result in depression, both physically and spiritually. And that's something that we need to wrestle with. But I have some caveats to that because some, sometimes we can take something a little too far. Well, what I mean when oftentimes the discipline of the Lord results in depression, I don't mean to say that every person who is depressed is under the discipline of the Lord. And that's not what that means. It goes one way, but not the other. The discipline of the Lord oftentimes and most often will result in depression. As we see this in David, but oftentimes there's people who are we see depression in people and they're not being disciplined of the Lord and it's not because they have unconfessed sin. And if you want to see that, go to the book of Job. Job, it's made clear at the very beginning, he was a righteous man. But God allowed trials to come upon his life. So I'm going to let these things come into your life, Job. And Job never got an explanation from God. And then his friends come, loving, great friends. They come and say, hey, Job, you're in sin. All of this is your fault. And Job continues to defend himself says, look, I haven't done anything wrong. There's no unconfessed sin in my life that I need to repent of. And yet he, uh, you know, if you read Job, he, he's, he goes into like, why was I born? Why do I even exist? It would have been better for me just to die in the womb, to have been miscarried. That's what he's saying. That's the depression that he sinks down into just because of the difficulty of his circumstances. But he had no sin that he needed to repent of. So so, uh, we have to understand that the Lord's discipline will oftentimes result in depression, but not every depressed person is in sin or under the discipline of God. We we must keep those things in tension. And in that last statement of verse 3, you see the depth of David's despair. He says, "But, but you, O Lord. And then it's almost like the end of the verse gets chopped off because David is sobbing. Because his emotions are so deep, he just says, You, Lord, how long? Lord, how long are you going to have your hand upon me? How long are you going to continue with this? That is what David is experiencing, some very serious distress. But he knows that his sin is the reason for his distress. And so what did he do? He welcomed the rebuke and discipline of God in his life. He rightly assessed what needed to to happen. In uh, in the last month, there have been two prominent pastors in in America who have been or had their sins revealed. It's very very sad. One of those pastors is, is a man named Bill Bill Hybels, uh, who, who's widely known not just in. Uh, Christian circles, but known in the secular world as well. And he's he's known because he is the, the founding pastor of a megachurch just outside of Chicago, Illinois, 25,000 people, uh, 11 campuses. And uh, he was one of the leaders of what was known as the church growth movement uh, earlier in the, uh, or in the later 20th century. Uh, so he's one of the, the men who has, whose sins has been made known recently. And another one is a pastor named Art Azurdia. 
uh, who was a, a, a pastor and president of a seminary in in Portland. And he's not as well known. He's only known kind of in a, in a circle of evangelical Christians. But his fall was shocking because he had been so faithful. He was a, a, a powerful uh, communicator and preacher of God's word. Both of these men were were caught in adultery. Now, and both of these men had had disqualified themselves from ministry. But there is a remarkable difference in the way that they responded to their sin. Uh, and there's a remarkable difference in the way that their churches dealt with their sin. So Willow Creek Church, the, the church where Bill Hybels uh, formerly pastored, it received the accusations against their pastor four years ago, and they didn't uh, investigate them as they should have. Uh, and what they initially briefly investigated and then said, oh, you know what, it's, there's nothing to that. Well, just this last week, it's been made clear that there were some improprieties, that there were some some serious sins that would disqualify him from being in ministry. And now uh, what was initially said, oh, that's not true. Now it has been proven true. And this church is scrambling. The, the Bill Hybels had stepped down in late April, uh, but uh, the, the two pastors that have filled in for him and all of the elders are now stepping down by the end of this year because of their mishandling of this investigation uh, and um, of what has taken place. And, and the church issued a statement uh, and in the, the statement of what has taken place, here's what they what they said. This is, we now believe that Bill entered into areas of sin related to the allegations that have been brought forth. But but in that statement, what's not clear is what exactly did he what did he do? What is he accused of? And then whether or not it's true. They say, hey, we believe the allegations to be true, but there's not necessarily a statement of what has taken place. And so that's on one hand. On the other hand. Trinity Church in Portland, where Art Azurdia had been a, the pastor. So they issued a clear statement outlining how Mr. Azurdia had disqualified himself. It says through a, a sexually immoral relationship with another woman, and that he had been removed from being a pastor and elder at the church. And then their, their statement concludes, it says, We grieve the shame this brings to the gospel and the sorrow it brings to God's people. And in addition to that, this pastor, Artazerdia, has issued a, a, you know, a confession uh, and a, a letter of repentance that he posted on social media. And in there, he clearly confesses and outlines his sin, what he committed, how he desires to repent and then get back in right relationship with the Lord, and how he's deeply grieved at the pain that this has caused his church. But Bill Hybels continues to deny the allegations against him. And this was, his story was front page news of the New York Times. Continues to, to deny it. One of these men has welcomed the discipline of the Lord. And one of them has tried to run from it. Only one of them has prayed along with David here. O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Discipline me, but not in your wrath. And some of us here might be feeling as David described in this verse, that, that our, our bones and our soul are wasting away. We are deeply distressed and troubled 
And you may feel like crying out, just as David did, Lord, how long? And it is worthwhile, if you are feeling that way, to, to, to ask some questions. To say, Lord, is there something in my life? Is there some sin that is separating me from you? Is there some reason that your hand might be upon me in discipline, chastening me lovingly, graciously? But Lord, might your hand be upon me? And if you feel that way, I want to say that there is always hope because of what Christ has done. Your flesh wants to cling to sin. What does our flesh always want to do when we sin? We want to conceal it. We want to cover it. We want to sweep it under the rug, act like it's not there. But Christ calls us to confess our sin, to agree with him about what's taken place, and then to forsake it, to leave it by the wayside and continue to pursue him. And if we do that, he promises mercy and compassion. Listen to Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And that's where we need to begin to develop the habit of thinking as David does here. That, that, that we need to be willing to acknowledge our own guilt before the Lord and to rightly identify when we are the reason for our own trials. Now, oftentimes we bring things into our own life by the decisions that we made. Sin's going to have consequences. That's the harvest principle. You, you reap what you sow. What you plant is what you're going to harvest. And that is what is made clear. And we must learn to, number one, begin to think about sin in the same way that David does, and then to welcome the discipline of the Lord, to desire it when we, when we do wander into sin. Lord, please get me back on track. Use your spirit, use your word, use your people to guide me back to you because I don't want to be lost. I don't want to be in the wilderness anymore. I want to be back in fellowship with you, Lord. That is what we need to begin to see and to desire. And we need to see God's hand not as a fist that's just ready to, to strike us, but as a hand that is willing to guide us, a hand that is willing to mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus. So in this first portion, we see David acknowledges his situation that says it's, own, it's his own fault. He appeals to God for grace. And he does this because we have a gracious God. Amen? We can always go to him for grace. And that gracious God, that truth about God, leads him to his second prayer that David's going to lift up in verses 4 through 7. This section you could call a prayer for deliverance in the midst of affliction. Read verses 4 through 7 with me. David says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Oops. We'll pause there after verse 7. But in this next prayer, you see David praying for deliverance. Uh, and, and his prayer is very emotional, but it also has a reasoning and a logic to it. First, he, he prays for deliverance on the basis of God's unfailing love. He says, turn, O Lord, 
deliver my life. Well, why would, why would you plead for the Lord to turn? Because what does it feel like when you have unconfessed sin? It feels like the Lord has turned his back on you. That he is away from you. So David is praying, Lord, please turn back. I want to confess my sin. I want to gain back that relationship that we had. So turn back to me and deliver my life. And then he says, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Again, it's not, God, please save me because I've been really good lately. Please do it. No, he says, God, your character. Act according to who you are, your steadfast loving kindness. Because you are a God who keeps his word. Because you are a God who loves and is gracious and compassionate, merciful. Lord, act according to your character, not according to mine. That is David's prayer. In essence, he's asking for for discipline. He's asking for rebuke. And he says, God, do it in love, not in anger. Act in your love. And then the the next flow of his of his logic, he's saying, "Hey, save me because there's there's no mention of you, there's no remembrance of you in Sheol." And some of you, like, what is Sheol? What is he talking about? Well, Sheol is a a Hebrew term speaking about uh, the underworld, the the place of the dead. And kind of Hebrew theology would be, "Hey, this is where all uh, people go right after death." Of, "Hey, there's the the wicked are there and the righteous are there." And uh, it's more complex uh, than that, but we don't can't, can't get into all of the details. But I think also the word can also just be used for a grave. And I think David's point here more than that is just, hey, graveyards are silent. You, you notice that? You go to a graveyard, it's quiet. And David's saying, Lord, if I die, who's going to praise you here? If, I, if I'm no longer here, Lord, you won't get the praise because that's what you've created me to do. You've created me to worship you. And yes, David would be in heaven uh, and be able to worship face to face. But the point here is, God, if I'm, if I'm not here, I'm not praising you here on this earth. That is David's point, that the dead do not sing anymore on this earth. So David uses this logic. He says, Lord, save me on the basis of your unfailing love. And then in verses 6 and 7, he says, save me on the basis of my failing life. That is, that is what David is saying. And, and the words that he uses are powerful. And, and it, it paints a heartbreaking picture, does it not? It says, I am, I am weary with my moaning. God, I have just exhausted myself with grief. He says, every night I flood my bed with tears. He's saying he cries so frequently and to such a great extent that it's like he, in the Hebrew, that he literally causes his bed to swim. So you can get a visual of that. That's what he's saying. God, I, I've been crying so much lately, each and every night, that it's like I, I make my bed float. And parallel to that would be the next statement where he says, I drench my couch with weeping. Again, the idea of I cause it to flood. That is what he's saying. He says, my eye wastes away because of grief. That idea of, of wasting, being becoming dark or clouded or weak. He says, my eye wastes away because of grief, and it grows weak because of all of my foes. He's saying, hey, the idea there of growing weak is the idea of, of growing older. It's like the, the human eye, as it grows older, it, it's not as good as it once was. You can't see as clearly. And David's saying, uh, my eye has grown weak, not because I'm growing older, but because of my tears. 
My eyes are exhausted. They're becoming weaker and weaker because of my weeping. We also see in this verse that David mentions human enemies. He mentions some foes, some attackers. He says, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And God will often use human instruments to discipline us. Even if we bring the discipline on ourselves, we are responsible. He will sometimes use human instruments to discipline and chasten us. Keep, if you keep your, your finger here and turn to the left, to Second Samuel. So I, before First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel tell us the life of David. And if you look at Second Samuel chapter sixteen, you'll see. Again, David always lived out his theology, which is pretty pretty remarkable. You, you'll see how he's able to look at a situation and say, "Hey, here's a human attacker, but you know what? Maybe maybe the Lord is using this person to judge me. Maybe I have sin in my life that I need to be humbled." Second Samuel fifteen, beginning in verse I'm sorry, sixteen, verse five. When King David came to uh, Bahurim. There came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And this is uh, earlier in Psalm 3, we read the context of this, of David is running for his life because his son Absalom is leading a rebe- rebellion against him. So David's had to run away from Jerusalem. And as he's fleeing, this man comes. And then in verse 6, and he threw stones at David. And at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you, but you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. Think about that. David and all his soldiers, all of his specially trained men who are like, hey, king, just say the word. I'll handle this guy. We don't have to deal with these rocks and cursings and all anymore. But king says, no, you know what? The Lord may have sent him. Maybe the Lord's going to use him to humble me, to get my attention. And you know what? The apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we won't, we won't go there, but 2 Corinthians 12 verses 7 through 10, he says, the Lord sent a thorn in my flesh. Uh, it says, a messenger of Satan. Somebody was sent to pester me, to bother me, to sanctify me, to keep me humble. 
Sometimes God uses human instruments to do that, which suddenly changes the way that you view that neighbor across the street or right next to you that just kind of drives you crazy or that or that coworker at your job who you always seem to butt heads with and uh, the the people that you might be crying out most frequently to God for deliverance from maybe the people that the Lord uses most significantly in your life to sanctify you. And all of these things, whether it's human instruments or just our own uh, disciplining by the Lord, all of this goes to show us that God has many tools in his toolbox, right? He's able to use uh, his word, his people, his spirit to to discipline us, other people, even unbelievers. But we also see that we can cry out to God for deliverance, that we can cry out to him and that even our tears are heard by him. Psalm 56, 8 says, you have count of my tossings and you put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? The idea of the psalmist saying, God, you know every single one of the tears that I have shed in my life. You are so aware of them. You know all that has taken place. Charles Spurgeon says, Let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers and of weeping as a constant dropping of intercession which will wear its way right surely into the very heart of mercy. Think about that. Thinking of of our tears as little liquid drops of prayer. David's prayer is, is so emotional but so logical. And we can use both in our prayers as we come to God, crying out to Him. We are, we are called not to, to check either our brains or our emotions at the door of the church or to the throne room of grace. We can bring both to God. All of our emotion, all of our logic. God, please respond to me because, because of these reasons. That's exactly what David does here. He offers up these two prayers for grace and deliverance in the middle of of discipline from God and afflictions from others. And in this this third portion of the psalm, to close out, this is where we begin to see this transformation, that, that as David has been praying these things to God, as he's been crying out to him, the Lord has been using David's prayers to work on David, to bring about change in David's life. Now, in these two prayers that we've seen, they begin to reorient David's heart, reminding him of the truth that he has a loving God, a gracious God, a covenant-keeping God who was holy and righteous. And the truths that he just prayed are going to give him confidence to make this proclamation in this last section. A proclamation of triumph in the midst of depression. Look with me at verses 8 through 10. David says, "'Depart from me, all you workers of evil.'" For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. And they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So in in these verses, David redirects his attention to those human attackers. And he instructs them. He says, you depart from me. And he gives them five reasons to do that. Number one, he says, the Lord has heard the, the voice of his weeping, the sound of his weeping. That, that In the ESV, uh, the beginning of uh, 
or the end of verse 8. So, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. That, that word for sound is also the same word for voice. And what an amazing picture that, that the Lord hears the voice of our weeping. That, that our tears have a voice that God hears and responds to. It says, the Lord has heard his plea and the Lord accepts his prayer. And those first three admonitions go together with the implication that, hey, God's heard my prayer and he's going to respond according to what David has prayed. And then David predicts what's going to happen to those who have been afflicting him. That they will be ashamed and they will be greatly troubled. But if you think back, so earlier in verses 2 and 3, it was, who was it that was troubled? Who was it in great distress? It was David, right? And he's saying, hey, Lord, I know in the future you're going to make those things right. So even those human instruments, so when, when Shimei is, is throwing rocks at David and his men, he's still in sin. He's still uh, acting uh, improperly. He's still attacking somebody else. So the Lord may be using him, but Shimei himself is is in sin. And David says, hey, you know what? Maybe the Lord will make things right in the future. And that's what he's alluding to here, that it, it was once David who was troubled, but now it will be his enemies. And then that final statement, that they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment, uh, that, that it's going to happen abruptly. Uh, and again, the idea of turning, remember in, in verse 4, David's saying, hey, Lord, turn back to me. I was separated from you, now turn your face to me. And the, uh, the reality that once God turns back to David, the result is going to be that David's enemies turn from him. Now that's the implication. That God, once God's favor returns and he's no longer being disciplined, David's enemies will be overcome and abruptly put to shame. And it's David's prayers that have brought him this confidence it's David's prayers, his confidence in God's love and grace and mercy and God's character that turn his attitude around. And this is what we've seen so far in the Psalms, that it's David's theology that anchors him. At the beginning of each Psalm, again, he's, he's coming full of emotion, just venting, Lord, I don't know what to do, what's going to happen, all of these things. And as he prays to the Lord, as he reminds himself of spiritual truth, he comes back down and is grounded once more. And in his prayers, he always takes his thoughts and emotions captive. And as he, as he does, as he prays truth, he prevents his, his mind and his heart from running around, around willy-nilly. But he takes all of his emotions and brings them to God and says, okay, what should I think of these things? And his thoughts about God lead him to this triumphant proclamation. It's not his wild emotions. Uh, there's one, one occasion where the evangelist Dwight Moody uh, was, was teaching at a meeting, and after the meeting, a man came up to him and says, I can't feel that I'm saved. I just don't feel that, that I, I'm saved. And, and Moody says to him, he says, well, I want to ask you a question. Was it Noah's feelings that saved him, or was it the ark? And the man says, ah, I see it now. See, see we're not saved according to our emotions, because our emotions are everywhere. Right? Let's be honest. All over the place. They come and they go. But our hope, our security, our trust, our foundation is to be found in who Jesus is and what he has done in Christ's person and work. Not in our emotions. Because they're constantly changing. And if you give power to your emotions and you say, well, just guide me wherever you want, you're going to be tossed to and fro constantly. The only way that David makes this proclamation at the end of this psalm, the only way he makes this proclamation in triumph is because he takes every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
that he might not lose hope. And you look at the way that he did that. How did that go about? What has God given to us to help reorient our hearts and our minds? Prayer. That is the instrument God has given to us. He says, hey, when you are overwhelmed with emotion, what should we do? Turn to the Lord in prayer. Go to the throne of grace. Begin to echo back to him who he is and what he has done. And as we echo back to God, his character, his attributes, his actions, it reorients our heart and we begin to to get right in our thinking and our emotions are put in check. One pastor says that prayer doesn't change things, but prayer lays hold of God who changes things and who in prayer changes you. And that's the design that we've seen in these psalms, that going to God in prayer, it's like God already knows what we're going to pray for. He knows better than we know what we need to pray for. But the act of going to him, running to him, reorients our own hearts. And we can be assured that God hears our prayers. He hears the voice of our weeping in our deepest and darkest trials, when our when our bones and our souls feel like they're wasting away we can still have hope because of who Christ is and what he has done. Even when we deserve God's rebuke and God's discipline, we can still have hope because of who Christ is and what he has done. And this, this is the, the second Sunday of the month. Uh, and here at Ambassador, what we, what we do on the second Sunday of the month is we, we celebrate communion together. Uh, we celebrate, and communion is a, a celebration, a, a visual illustration, a representation of our fellowship with Jesus. When we partake of these elements, uh, and the men can, can come forward and begin to, to pass them out. When we partake of these things, we are saying, Lord, I am so thankful that we are in fellowship. That you have paid the penalty for my sin, that I am forgiven, and that I am, am now in right relationship with you. And as these, as these elements are passed out, the, the bread and the cup, uh, this, this is a, a celebration that's, that's intended only for, for those who have placed their faith in Christ. Because again, it's, it's our faith in Jesus, His death, His, on the cross, His resurrection from the grave, and His ascension into heaven. That is what, what saves us, uh, and brings us into right relationship with Him. And when we, when we have believed that, then we no longer stand before our creator and he's our judge. Again, that, that relationship gets transformed and now we are a child of God before a heavenly father. That relationship is transformed. And that's what this is a celebration of. So if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, please just allow these elements to, to pass you by. And, and as these elements are, are being passed out and as we, as we have looked at Psalm 6 today, it was all about this relationship with God, communion. But, but David didn't feel close to God at the beginning of the psalm because what did he realize? He realized that there was sin in his heart, in his life, that was hindering his relationship with the Lord. He says, Lord, what I have chosen to do, the sins that I have committed, even as a believer, are now have separated from him. He says, Lord, I deserve your rebuke. I deserve your discipline. But do that in, in love, not in anger. And so as, as the elements are continued to, to be passed out, and as we prepare to take them together, what, I, what I'd ask for you to do 
is take some, some time in the quietness of your own seat there and come before a holy God and confess anything that you need to confess. If there is something that has been hindering your relationship with God or hindering your relationship with others, confess that now. Deal with your sin righteously. Appeal to God for grace. And prepare our hearts as we get ready to to celebrate, again, communion, closeness with God, and as a result of us being close to God, being close to one another. But let us take a moment to pray in our own hearts now. On Jesus' last night with his uh, disciples, as they were enjoying the Passover meal together, uh, Mark 14 records the events. It says, And as they were eating, he took bread and blessing it, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And this, this cracker represents the body of Christ that was broken on our behalf so that we might be forgiven. Let us partake it in remembrance of him now. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Christ is looking forward to the day when when we can share face-to-face communion with him. And by partaking of this, cup we remember his blood shed on our behalf his blood that that washes us that cleanses us that that brings us forgiveness let us take it together in remembrance of his sacrifice let us pray lord jesus we come to you praising you thanking you for who you are and what you have done on us on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we thank you for bearing our sin, for dying on the cross, for rising again, for ascending into heaven, for now interceding on our behalf. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that because of what you have done, we are now brought into the family of God. We have been adopted. That we are now sons and heirs. What a blessing that is, Lord that our relationship with God the Father has been changed from judge to daddy. That we can now come and appeal to him. We can come and, and pour out all of our emotions, all of our, all of our struggles. Lord, we can acknowledge when we need to be disciplined because we know we have a loving Father who will discipline us, not in anger, but in patience, in kindness, in grace. And God, we we would echo David's prayer that, Lord, we are, we are deserving of rebuke from your word. We are deserving of discipline from your rod. And Lord, may you correct us. May you discipline us. But Lord, please do that in love. Extend grace. Do not deal with us as we deserve but according to your steadfast loving kindness. And Lord, teach us. Teach us to pray. Teach us to bring every emotion captive to the obedience of Christ. 
And may our theology, may our understanding of who you are, anchor our souls and give us hope so that we too might not be overcome with, with depression and overwhelmed with emotion, but be able to make a, a proclamation of triumph that we know that you will carry us through each and every occasion of our own sin, each and every affliction by the hands of others. Lord, you will carry us through. Lord, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and our communion with you. And we long just to continue to worship you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.